Leave it to the usual pinheaded professors on college campuses to try to demolish democracy. The Constitution is their latest punching bag. They're demanding that Joe Biden defy the United States Supreme Court and essentially set himself up as America's grand poobah who decides all matters relevant to the public good, which is really the good of the progressive idiocy. All of this was predictable, of course, after the justices struck down affirmative action as a blatant violation of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, and after the High Court upheld the First Amendment rights of a graphic designer who was forced to express views with which he disagreed. And after the justices scuttled Biden's half-a-billion-dollar loan forgiveness vote-buying scheme as nothing more than a lawless usurpation of congressional powers under the Constitution. Every one of these decisions was constitutionally sound, mind you, and that's exactly why Harvard Law Professor Mark Tushnet and San Francisco State University political science Aaron Belkin signed an open letter to Joe Biden urging him to simply ignore those rulings by quote-unquote MAGA justices and do whatever he wants. Their argument makes as much sense as a porcelain hammer. Typical of today's ivory tower muttonheads, the two professors theorize that Biden is entitled to reject rulings he just doesn't like because the court, quote, does not exercise exclusive authority over constitutional meaning, end of quote. What? Seriously? Well, I suspect these two professors never quite digested the contents of that remarkable document written by our founders. To ensure a separation of powers, the Constitution established three branches of government, whereby Congress makes laws, the President enforces the laws, and the Supreme Court interprets the laws. Whenever laws violate the rights of citizens guaranteed by the Constitution's Bill of Rights and other amendments, it is the exclusive duty of the U.S. Supreme Court to nullify those laws. The president has no authority whatsoever in the matter. He cannot declare himself above the Constitution and act as a tyrannical dictator. George Washington law professor Jonathan Turley correctly assessed those professors' twisted mentality this way. And I'll quote Jonathan. They're calling for Biden to declare himself the final arbiter of what the Constitution means and to exercise unilateral executive power without congressional approval. He is to become a government unto himself. Jonathan's right. I pity the students who pay exorbitant tuitions to sit in classrooms only to listen to twaddle from the likes of Tushnet and Belkin. Forsaking their duties as honest educators, they permit their own partisan agenda to warp young minds who may not know any better. That's not higher education, it's lower education. Forrest Gump had more sense in that noggin of his. Those students deserve a full refund. 
attorney, Fox News legal analyst, and two-time New York Times bestselling author. This is The Brief with Greg Jarrett. Experts say that China is hoarding a massive amount of food. They will soon have over half the world's wheat. What does this mean for you and me? Two words, food shortages. That's why you should stock up on the best-selling Four Patriots Survival Food. Create your own stockpile by using the code GREG, G-R-E-G-G. Four Patriots Survival Food is hand-packed in the USA with different delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, and their five-star reviews on the website rave about the flavor and taste. Just go to fourpatriots.com and use the code G-R-E-G-G to get 10% off your first purchase of Four Patriots Survival Food. That's fourpatriots.com. Use the code GREG, G-R-E-G-G. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Brief. I'm Greg Jarrett. I don't want to sully the good names and reputations of many fine professors at colleges and universities in America, but increasingly, there are supposedly learned teachers who don't seem to know crap. They spout far-left orthodoxy as gospel and woke progressive ideals as scripture. Now, it's easy to dismiss them as mere idiots and morons, and maybe they are that, but they do have a profound effect on young minds who soak up their nonsense and tend to believe it. The same is true in politics today. The progressive movement dominates the Biden agenda. Bureaucrats in government and many Democrats who have a chokehold on the party have embraced it zealously and irrationally. They don't care that Americans disagree with them. The woke warriors simply ignore the polling data that shows their beliefs are not shared. They're so determined to force their liberal dogma down our throats that any malevolent end justifies the means, even if it requires violating cherished constitutional rights or bastardizing statutory law. And then they act shocked when the U.S. Supreme Court reverses their lawless actions. And at that point, they launch vicious denunciations and demonize Republicans, conservatives, and the high court justices themselves. If you don't conform, you'll be attacked, canceled, and punished. In a constitutional republic founded on Madisonian democratic principles, the exclusive remedy is at the ballot box. It'll change only if enough Americans get fed up and vote to toss the scoundrels out. Every time there's a decision that liberals don't like, they resuscitate efforts to pack the Supreme Court. Like sore losers, they want to change the rules when they're not winning. Like a spoiled brat, they announce, I'm taking my ball and bat and I'm going home. But packing the U.S. Supreme Court would trigger a severe political backlash. Polls consistently show that a vast majority of Americans are dead set against it. They correctly view it as cheap manipulation for partisan gain. But it's also a full frontal assault on the separation of powers that would undermine 
the judiciary's independence. The high court would devolve into a political football tossed back and forth in numbers depending upon what party is in power. It would expand and contract and then expand again, creating chronic instability and legal chaos. The Supreme Court's legitimacy would erode as public trust diminishes. Importantly, the case decisions themselves would gyrate back and forth. For example, an expanded court might reinstate affirmative action, only to reverse it when the composition of the court changes whenever the pendulum of politics swings the other way, as it inevitably does. Joe Biden was actually right when, as a U.S. senator, he called Franklin Delano Roosevelt's court-packing scheme a boneheaded idea. It didn't work then in 1937, and it won't work now. What liberals always tend to overlook is that in the last 20 years, the most common Supreme Court decision is unanimous, nine to zip. And justices often rule against the very president who placed them on the high court. If the left doesn't like SCOTUS decisions, well, perhaps they should give legislating a try. Get Congress off its lazy duff to do the hard work of addressing issues by debate and compromise, things like abortion, immigration, and religious freedoms. Don't expect judges to act as super legislators, which they are not. In other words, Congress should do its damn job. How novel and refreshing would that be? There is one area where Congress has actually been doing something rather productive. That is, investigating evidence of a Joe and Hunter Biden bribery scheme that could be grounds for impeachment. Now, I've argued for more than four years that Joe Biden's infamous on-camera brag in which he threatened Ukraine into firing the lead prosecutor investigating Burisma looked very much like an extortion and bribery scheme. Why? Well, because Hunter Biden was on the energy company's payroll. He was pocketing millions of dollars for doing absolutely nothing except exerting his father's influence. Together, the duo appear to have worked this lucrative scam by leveraging dad's power as vice president to enrich the Bidens. Thursday of last week, the heretofore secret FBI document known as an FD-1023 form was finally, belatedly, publicly revealed by Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa. He obtained it, by the way, from whistleblowers at the Department of Justice, where it had been buried since June of 2020 by those seeking to protect Biden in his bid for the presidency back then. The document was unclassified, so there was never any legal reason to conceal it from Congress or the American public. In it, a confidential human source, long regarded by the FBI as trusted and highly credible, offered first-hand knowledge of a bribery scam that was designed to net the Bidens 
$10 million. Beginning in 2015, that source met numerous times over several years with senior Burisma officials, including its CEO, Mykola Zalashevsky. The source learned the following information. Burisma, natural gas giant in Ukraine, wanted to expand its holdings abroad by purchasing a large energy company in the United States. But it had a very serious problem that first needed eliminating. You see, Burisma was under investigation by the top Ukrainian prosecutor general, Viktor Shokin, who had uncovered rampant corruption at the company. And if Shokin exposed even more of their shady practices, well, that would end any bid by Burisma to enter the U.S. energy market. Enter Joe and Hunter Biden. The then vice president's son, who had no experience in the energy industry, he didn't even speak the national language, was hired to sit on the company's board of directors. That's a pretty neat trick. He was given an absurdly inflated compensation package that ran into the millions of dollars. Solovshevsky told the CHS that Hunter Biden was retained so that everything will be okay. That's a quote. And that Shokin's probe will, here's another quote, go away. Well, guess what? That's precisely what happened. On a visit to Ukraine, Joe Biden threatened government leaders that, as vice president in charge of U.S. foreign policy in Ukraine, he would withhold $1 billion in American financial aid unless that prosecutor Shokin was summarily canned. By his own admission during a pompous televised interview, Joe Biden gave the Ukrainians a six-hour deadline before his plane departed. Son of a bitch, he was fired, boasted Joe. Sloshevsky complained to the confidential human source that he had been coerced by the Bidens and, quote, pushed to pay them $10 million. Here's another quote from that document. It cost $5 million to pay one Biden and $5 million to pay another Biden, he said. What the Bidens didn't know, according to the source, is that the Burisma CEO had surreptitiously recorded 17 telephonic conversations with the Bidens as they negotiated their bribery demands. Two of the tapes purportedly involved Joe, and 15 tapes were with Hunter. There are also said to be text messages confirming the Biden demands. None of the payments went directly to the big guy, explained Zolashevsky. Then he added, quote, it would take them investigators 10 years to find the records of illegal payments to Joe Biden, end of quote. All of this is found in that FD-1023 form that the DOJ and the FBI has been concealing for years. It's already been established that Hunter set up a complex web of shell companies and LLCs to handle the flow of overseas cash, but there is also an indication in the FBI document that cryptocurrency may have been used to convey the Burisma payola to the Biden family. 
Whether Joe personally received any of the payments is, under the law, utterly irrelevant. It doesn't matter. You see, it's a crime to use your public office to confer a benefit on a foreign entity or government in exchange for something of value to yourself or, and this is the important part, to your family. In other words, money is called bribery, conspiracy, and a violation of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And the term coercion that's stated in the FD-1023 form also supports the crime of extortion. But that's not all. If the money was funneled through the aforementioned shell companies for the purpose of concealing its origin and purpose, well, that would constitute money laundering and tax fraud, not to mention racketeering. On Thursday, the White House claimed it had all been previously debunked. It has not, I promise you. Democrats chimed in by asserting that then-Attorney General Bill Barr closed the investigation in 2020 for lack of evidence. That is a complete lie, as confirmed by Barr himself in recent public statements. In fact, the truth is the AG sent the case to the U.S. Attorney for Pittsburgh, who reportedly found additional incriminating evidence against the Bidens that the FBI either overlooked or deliberately ignored. Regrettably, the case was eventually forwarded for action to the Delaware U.S. Attorney, that's right, which is where all Biden corruption cases go to die. That office appears to have done absolutely nothing about it. IRS whistleblowers this week noted that they were prevented from investigating the contents of that FBI document. Meanwhile, the Bureau worked to conceal the 1023 form, yet another example of the FBI's efforts to protect the Bidens. And they're still at it. But there is always, inevitably, a paper trail. There are documents that Congress can and should locate such as wire transfers, bank records, text and email messages, and maybe the purported voice recordings involving Hunter and his father. Were the Bidens selling out their country? Well, what do you think? It certainly looks like it, doesn't it? Remember, bribery and treason are impeachable offenses, in addition to being serious felonies. So this is a blockbuster scandal that could doom Biden's presidency. What about the whistleblowers? They have revealed how Biden's Department of Justice rigged Hunter's cozy plea deal. And that will be important this week because that plea hearing is scheduled for Wednesday, July 26, before federal judge Mary Ellen Norieka. There is some indication that the Department of Justice, the prosecutors who negotiated that sweetheart deal, may be getting cold feet. Heritage Foundation is sued for the DOJ prosecutorial communications with Biden's lawyers, and a different federal judge has told them, you gotta hand them over. 
So don't be surprised if on Wednesday there is a sudden delay in Hunter Biden entering his plea deal. Actually, Americans should be fuming over the latest revelations of how Hunter was gifted this cozy plea deal that keeps him out of prison, which, by the way, is where he belongs. On Wednesday of last week, two IRS whistleblowers recounted in detail how his father's Department of Justice thwarted their investigation into tax fraud and tax evasion, all of which arose out of the first son's multi-million dollar foreign influence peddling schemes. IRS agents Gary Shapley and Joseph Ziegler laid out compelling evidence of serious crimes committed by Hunter that culminated in a smoking gun document, Exhibit 2, which was signed by both investigators and prosecutors, all of them, to charge Hunter with multiple felonies. Yet, those charges were never brought. The felonies magically vanished because Delaware U.S. Attorney David Weiss, by his own admission during a pivotal meeting in October of last year, was stopped by Merrick Garland's Department of Justice and two other U.S. attorneys who just happened to have been appointed by Joe Biden himself in California and Washington, D.C. The stunning account by the IRS whistleblowers serves as a tutorial on how to execute preferential treatment to avoid legal consequences. Their testimony, by the way, is corroborated by contemporaneous notes, a same-day email summarizing David Weiss's confessional, the recent sworn statements of an FBI supervisory special agent assigned to the Biden probe, and independent confirmation by the New York Times. So all of this puts an ugly lie to Attorney General Merrick Garland's previous sworn statements to Congress that Weiss had unfettered authority to level whatever charges he wished and in any venue. This constitutes grounds for impeachment of Garland. Weiss himself has been less than forthright by offering shifting stories. At first, he insisted that he incurred no interference and had ultimate authority to bring charges in any jurisdiction, including California and Washington, D.C. But then, in a second letter to Congress, Weiss reversed course. He conceded that his power to prosecute was actually confined to his district of Delaware. All right, David, which is it? Well, it appears that Weiss was caught in a lie and is now trying to weasel his way out of it. Predictably, Weiss refuses to testify because, you know, the investigation is still ongoing, which is a transparent charade. The criminal pursuit of Hunter Biden is as dead as a doornail. His dad is seen to it. There will be no real accountability for Hunter's obvious criminal schemes. The whistleblowers watched the political interference unfold before their very eyes. Search warrants were scuttled. Hunter's lawyers were 
tipped off before a storage unit raid. Investigators were stopped from asking questions about the big guy and Joe's involvement in a suspected bribery scheme. They were also forbidden from looking at the infamous They were also forbidden from looking at the infamous laptop, which is chock full of incriminating evidence. Their plan to approach Hunter was aborted. The statute of limitations were allowed to lapse. A special counsel was rejected, and roadblocks were set up at every turn. This is the definition of obstruction and corruption by our own government a clandestine cover-up of historic proportions. Lacking any legitimate counter-argument, Representative Jamie Raskett of Maryland dismissed all of it as normal. Seriously, he said that, normal. Oh, it's just an unfortunate misunderstanding, a, a miscommunication, said Raskin. The result of prosecutorial discretion, he claimed. You know, nothing more than a simple disagreement over charges. Except there was no disagreement. None. All of the IRS investigators and the lead prosecutors in Delaware universally agreed, without dissent, that felony charges against Hunter Biden were more than justified. And in fact, they planned to bring them. They even signed a document saying so. It's in writing. The next thing they knew, Hunter cops a plea to a couple of minor misdemeanors. Now, I ask you this. What other American would ever receive such preferential treatment? The answer is obvious. No one. Ever the Biden apologist, Raskin had the audacity to claim that Hunter Biden was unfairly punished. Well, in truth, the president's nefarious son got away with the most serious crimes of tax fraud and tax evasion, not to mention influence peddling, bribery, conspiracy, money laundering, FARA crimes, violation of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, and probably racketeering. A year ago, I calculated that the Biden family enriched themselves to the tune of roughly $100 million in overseas payola, maybe more. Last week, Representative Andy Biggs of Arizona offered the exact same estimate in an interview on Fox News. Naturally, the mainstream media completely ignored the whistleblower hearing last week. They've dismissed it as non-newsworthy. Well, they're wrong as usual. Selling out our country to foreign adversaries jeopardizes America's national security. The Biden cover-up is further proof that we have a president who is seriously compromised. This is exactly what our founders feared, which is why they made treason and bribery an impeachable offense. Instead, Democrats and their media handmaidens are wishing and hoping and praying for an imminent indictment of Donald Trump over the January 6th riots. Well, let me say this. If Trump is charged with inciting violence, 
based solely on his speech at the National Mall, that will not be enough, both factually and legally. Where's the evidence that Trump intended for demonstrators to breach security at the Capitol building, attack police, threaten lawmakers, and destroy property? It can be found nowhere in any of the words that he uttered that day. Just watch the speech. It's on YouTube. You can see it anytime you want. At no time did Trump encourage imminent violence or advocate harm. And that is the established constitutional standard. You'll find it in the seminal case of Brandenburg versus Ohio, in which the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that speech advocating illegal conduct is protected by the First Amendment unless the speech is likely to incite, quote, imminent lawless action. As the High Court noted, the doctrine of incitement rests on the speaker's specific intent, not how a listener may interpret it or misinterpret the words of the speaker. While Trump encouraged the audience to let their voices be heard, he cautioned them behave peacefully. That distinction is something that the mainstream media has routinely ignored. Members of the partisan J6 committee, as well as Democrats in Trump's second impeachment trial, deliberately omitted his peaceful remarks in their cleverly edited video presentations that were themselves incendiary. Also consider Trump's use of the terms fight and fight like hell in his speech. Heard in context, they were figurative, not literal, indicative of hyperbole, they are words and phrases employed all too often by politicians, including every Democrat in the U.S. Senate, as we saw in an impeachment video played by the defense during the trial. Joe Biden used the word fight repeatedly. Liz Warren uttered it more than 50 times. Kamala Harris invoked fight close to 70 times as a senator. That kind of language has never constituted grounds for prosecution. Why? It is so ubiquitous. Ginning up emotion and outrage? Well, that's found nowhere in the criminal codes. Notably, Democrats have hurled heated rhetoric far uglier, more incendiary than anything Donald Trump said on January 6th. There are reels of videotape to prove it. Some even wished aloud they could punch Donald Trump in the face. Biden openly talked about beating him up. Okay, it's distasteful. It's crude, but it ain't criminal. It's unlikely that Trump's speech by itself can sustain an indictment. As a result, some have claimed that he condoned the Capitol violence after the fact by not voicing more forcefully an immediate condemnation. Well, legally, that is an utterly absurd argument because it does not constitute a crime under our set of laws. If it did, Democrats might have been charged for failing to denounce Antifa and BLM violence during the summer of rage in 2020. Judging by their conciliatory comments at the time, many of them seemed to approve of the deadly and destructive riots. It's also not a crime to tell your supporters that the presidential election was either stolen or rigged 
regardless of whether it's true. In America, we have a constitutional right to be wrong, to express mistaken beliefs. Disagreeable speech is permissible, just as hateful speech is fully protected speech under the First Amendment. Let's not forget that both Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi publicly challenged the integrity of a prior election by also claiming it was rigged and stolen. Yes, with his encouragement, Donald Trump's congressional allies launched a concerted, albeit futile, effort to contest the 2020 result by challenging the electoral college count and certification. But wait, that is perfectly permissible under the Electoral Count Act. Read it. Democrats used the identical tactic to try to deprive Donald Trump of the presidency four years earlier. It is not a lawless attempt to subvert an election or defraud a government process, as some have claimed. All right, so if Trump's speech is not the gravamen of an indictment, what is? Is there some heretofore unknown evidence that he schemed with others to commit an insurrection? Well, you'll recall that the FBI found scant evidence that the assault on the U.S. Capitol was an organized plot to overthrow the government. So, unless special counsel Jack Smith has uncovered some incriminating evidence linking Trump directly to a seditious conspiracy, the government will be hard-pressed to bring an indictment on that basis. All right, the hard but obvious truth is that Americans who committed violence at our nation's capital that terrible day are directly to blame for their grotesque, their despicable acts. But there will always be people crazed with anger. Whether Trump is legally culpable, that is a dramatically different question. And that's The Brief. I'm Greg Jarrett. Thanks for listening.